Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus, a probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Tossing and turning all night like a salad? It's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker and I thought if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm Jill, and today I have a fun one for you. We are talking about sober sex. So sober sex can be very intimidating, especially if you believe that alcohol helps you feel more confident, comfortable, and in the mood for sex. So today I'm joined by Dr. Nazneen Mwali, host of the Sexology Podcast, to discuss why we think alcohol is essential for sex, why sober sex can be so scary, and tips for singles and couples who are trying to get comfortable with sober sex. 
I asked Dr. Moali to come on because she's a friend and I've actually been a big fan of her podcast for a while. And I ended up meeting her in person at a podcasting conference back in March when she attended my presentation. And I was a bit of a fangirl when I saw her in the audience, but afterwards we connected and we became friends. And I asked her on today because she's a sex and relationship expert, but she also has extensive training in the treatment of eating disorders and addiction. So she has a lot of expertise to share with us. Dr. Mowali shares strategies for anyone to begin implementing in their sex life, whether you're single or in a relationship. And we also touch on people who have a history of trauma or a history of body image issues and disordered eating. So I really hope you enjoy this one and I hope that you will go check out the Sexology Podcast next. So let's get to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about sober sex. I love your show and it's my honor to be on this uh, on this podcast. And also, I think it's such an important conversation. So thank you for, invi- for your invitation. Thank you. So the reason that I wanted you on is because I get asked about sober sex all the time. And I think I am the exact wrong person <laughs> to talk about it. I did not like drunk sex at all. It was not my thing. And I met my husband like right after I started drinking. So I never like I've been married to the same guy the whole time. So no experience at all. So I thought we needed a real expert to come in and tell us about drunk sex versus sober sex. So thank you again. I want to start with your background because something I didn't know about you when we first met is that your background is actually in addiction and eating disorders. So I thought that was really interesting. Can you tell me more about like why you decided to go that route with your training? Sure. So I always knew I would want to be a psychologist. I felt that uh, human suffering worth paying attention to. And when someone is struggling with a broken leg or like they had a knee surgery, everyone around them kind of so worried, they want to help them. But if you have a depression or anxiety, Most people say like, you don't know, you're going to get over it, just like snap out of it, which is the pain is the same. Why are we undermining people's emotional pain and mental health challenges? So I I always saw that's something I want to do. And uh, we have a family history of addiction. And I also myself struggle with eating disorder. So when I was an undergrad, I volunteered at VA for a research study that they were doing. And I fell in love with people's stories. Some of the most amazing, uh, sensitive, witty people I met or people who are struggling addiction. And I feel it just so misunderstood. People think maybe like, you know, it's about the substance, whether it's alcohol, whether it's any kind of substance, that is the issue. So if we're cutting access, then that's the, the problem going to get resolved. But what I learned that people are in lots of pain 
And this is a tool for them to uh, quiet their mind and being able to function. And I, I've, the transformation was so amazing for me. I was like, oh my God, I can, I can be part of these people's journey. And it's just such an honor to go through this journey with people. I even worked at methadone clinics and like some kind of like a really kind of um, sketchy part of LA. And I saw that people were given the right tool they were able to recover. And some of these people were people who, who experienced horrible traumas, whether they kind of served in different wars or they experienced all sorts of trauma. So that's why I loved working with uh, clients who wanted to get sober when they were uh, kind of starting the journey of recovery. Because with addressing, people focusing on the wrong thing. So with addressing and helping them, with working through those challenging experiences, uh, you help them to transform their life. And at times you can transform their generation. Like with addiction, my family, it passes from one generation to another because you, you never break the chain with addressing what's underneath. So that's why I fell in love with that. And there are lots of commonality between eating disorders and addiction at times, lots of co-occurring challenges. So uh, that's, that's how I fell in love. Yeah, I think that's interesting. The point that you made about like just removing the substance isn't the end of the story. Like I think that's what a lot of us think. We just we get sober like okay, we did it. Let's go. Happy life is on its way and then you realize like no. <laughs> there's actually a lot of stuff here and you'll just pick a different route to coping with it if you don't learn how to do it in healthier ways. Absolutely, and that's why cross-addiction is a thing. Uh, when I was working at inpatient at uh, Kaiser, like they were kind of like we're talking about how people sometimes like stop the drinking and they start the uh, compulsive exercising because the underneath pain is there and you're just doing your best to cope. Yeah, I started with food and then eventually I discovered alcohol and alcohol just did a better job than food. So I was like, okay, I'll give, I'll give that up. And now I'll just focus on the drinking. But yeah, it's really hard. Um, I've been reading a lot about OCD recently. And I read something that said that the compulsion of asking other people for reassurance or, or Googling or going in these forums, it's like a band-aid on the actual problem, but it doesn't actually fix anything. And I think that's you know, similar to all struggles, that the drinking is kind of like a Band-Aid and it's not addressing the actual like trauma or issue below it. I agree with you. And I think that's why people continue to relapse at times is that they're doing the hard work of getting sober, getting clean. But now we're facing all of these challenges that we wanted to avoid to start with. So I think that's why it's important for people to go on this journey of exploration of what what led me to this place without kind of like judging yourself, without kind of like uh, leaning to shame and all of those negative stories. So I, I agree with you that uh, it's, it's important to understand what's underneath. So then eventually you transitioned into the work that you do now, which is focus more on on sex therapy. So what like what made you make that transition and what inspired you to work more in sex therapy? One thing that people don't know, I still half of my practice is treatments of eating disorders and addictions. But because of my show, people know more about sexual health kind of part of things. And what's interesting for me, always talking about sex was very easy. 
So ever since I was a kid, I was able to kind of like talk about sex. And I grew up in a kind of, as people can guess from my accent, I'm Iranian in a conservative community. But I felt that I was able to provide the information uh, to people in a way that they were able to uh, hear it and receive it. Uh, so as a psychologist, I, I thought it would be important for for people to, for therapists to talk about all kind of gamuts of challenges that people have. I asked them about the relationship with food, with sex, with kind of substances. And I was shocked that that's like many of my clients, no one ever asked them about like sexual health, the challenges they had. And when I started kind of asking about it, I figured that people were coming with more questions about that and referring people for for that. That's how I started my show. It's like, let, let's kind of give people psychoeducation about that so we can work on the process in this session. So that's how my uh, sex therapy practice uh, started because of like the questions that my clients had. And it's so unfortunate that I, I believe sex education, regardless of uh, your values, it's, it's essential for everyone. But many people haven't received the information that will help them to experience the connection they want with themselves and others. So um, that's how I got interested in kind of doing this. And there's a lot of shame in in sex too. Like whether you, you know, you're not sure what you're doing or you've had sexual trauma or you're having a sexual issue in your relationship, there's a ton of shame in that. And there's probably a big link between people that are struggling with alcohol or eating disorders and maybe also struggling with some kind of sexual issue too. Have you seen that? Absolutely. Like, for example, like think about eating disorders. Like at times for people, they have complicated relationship with pleasure, right? At times we're restricting the pleasure or we're binging on pleasurable things. And it shows up in the kind of the relationship with sex as well. So I definitely see loss of comorbidity. And at times I also see that uh, some of the addictions are the disease of disconnection. And when you are feeling that like so much shame and kind of like sex is something that's it's difficult for you, it can get in the way of you connecting with other people. So I see it as an integral part of people's recovery, regardless of how much sex they want, how, what sexual orientation they have. I think our relationship with pleasure uh, remains the same, regardless of if we're struggling with kind of addiction or eating disorders or sexual health challenges. Sexual issues like sexual assault or some kind of sexual trauma can also be like the catalyst for an eating disorder to form or like some kind of addiction to develop. Um, and I know that I have some listeners that are worried like when they get sober from alcohol or whatever they're struggling with, like an eating disorder might come back or like all these other issues. And is that kind of what you were talking about before, like with with transfer addiction? Yeah, well, I think one thing that is kept, uh, people need to keep in mind is to kind of like, you're going on this journey of discovery, right? They're kind of like thinking about what's underneath. And when you discover it, you have your key for long-term recovery, perhaps, because you can work with a, a trained therapist, coach, someone that they can help you work through that kind of like initial pain. So you aren't then leaving in the kind of like your optimal window for yourself. So uh, you, you don't need to kind of struggle to survive. So for some people, like it takes few months after the kind of like so, when they become sober to experience the symptoms for people can come like this, the challenges can come from the first day. 
way. So everyone's experiences is different. Uh, but as long as you're working with someone, as long as you're getting support, uh, then uh, you are in the uh, way to living a better, healthier life. Totally agree with you. So a lot of us cannot imagine like dating or connecting with our partners or any of that without alcohol being present. And we spend some of us even decades relying on alcohol to facilitate connection or to make us feel more relaxed. Why is alcohol and sex like so linked? Well, uh, sex can be uh, at times for people like uh, taboo, right? That is something that we're struggling with. And we're just like, sometimes people have this complicated relationship with it that it feels so great. And like there are messaging of like good girls are not they don't like sex or men are like sex machines and you have to always perform. So all of these myths that we always, like most of us heard. So it's like our view of sex at times is distorted and the focus is on performance. And uh, when you're drinking alcohol, uh, it can lower the inhibition and makes the performance for some people easier. But what we miss is that great sex is about being in your body and experiencing the sensation. And when you're having, a, uh, like when you're drunk, uh, the, like you're, vo- you're lowering the volume of sensitivity in your body. It's like even the best sex is like you're listening to your favorite music in a very low volume. So when you are able to kind of uh, practice getting into your body, when you're not drinking, then you're increasing the volume. But I think for many people, they have at times social anxiety. There are so many underlying challenges that they haven't addressed. Uh, Maybe it could be a history of trauma, like we experience sexual trauma and uh, we are quieting our mind with using substances and uh, we're just numbing ourselves out. And it gets in the way of us experiencing true pleasure. Uh, and also increase like many of my clients so when they uh, come to me they say we had lots of fun quote-unquote sexual experiences uh, but I I feel numb in my uh, genital I didn't feel I don't feel anything and that's why because like our body is not maybe want to have those experiences not ready because the trauma still is in our body but we are muting our internal voice with using substances I like the way that you compared that to listening to music. I think that's something really easy for everyone to understand. It's like listening to really, really quiet music. And I've described before in a very early episode, like how alcohol makes it much harder for you to feel pleasure and have an orgasm and all of that. Um, But I think that's just the perfect way to describe it. And then when we try to not drink and have sex, like all of a sudden there's discomfort, maybe body image insecurities, or maybe you're like not into the usual routine that you have with whoever you're having sex with. So it can be really scary. What do you think like a major challenge is that someone would face when they start having sober sex for the first time? One challenge that I hear from my clients is that it's just like initial kind of initiating the first part of it. It feels very awkward, right? Like when I'm drunk, I'm able to initiate easier and things go smoother. So that's that could be a challenge that people have. Uh, sometimes with uh, vulva owners, the challenge is they experience uh, pain. Like they have some kind of a challenge, kind of whether it's a painful intercourse, uh, kind of like uh, dyspronia. There is some source of pain 
and uh, they've been numbing it out with alcohol. They haven't been experiencing pleasure as much, but at least they were not in the pain. Um, unfortunately, one of the common messages that people say when, when a woman says, I have experienced painful intercourse, they say, just have a couple glasses of wine. And that's never a solution, right? That you want to, if it's a pelvic floor pain, if it's a sexual assault, you want to work on that. So I think that's part of it. The other part is like, we just don't know what we want or what's exciting for us. And drinking helps us to go through the routine that we're having. Like it just makes things like, uh, like numb us out and we're able to have the same kind of experience that we're not excited about. Another situation for people who are the survivors of uh, sexual assault, sexual trauma, uh, their body goes into this place of fight and flight. And when you're drinking, uh, it makes the sexual experience you're having is more tolerable. The other challenge for like penis owner is that for, for them, sometimes it's able, it's hard to get an erection or maintain an erection because of the anxiety. So that's a way for people to calm that anxiety. Again, it's, it can lead to delayed orgasm or having too much alcohol, uh, like leads for people not being able to get an erection, but that's a way that they always taught themselves to address the issue. So that when you are not drinking, then perhaps that's a challenge that you have. Uh, all of these things are something that you can figure out. And I bet you that if you work on it, your sexual experience is going to get significantly better, but there are going to be some uh, readjusting in the routine that you're having and changes that you need to do in order to reach the kind of experience that you would like to have. You know, what's funny is you said initiation at the beginning, and I realized like, yeah, that is, that is actually a part of it. Because when I imagine drunk sex, I imagine like two people, you know, getting drunk and then all of a sudden they're like having sex with each other, there's no real, like in, the initiation is more like in a look, like you want to have sex and then they just kind of do it. Have you found that like just learning how to initiate at all is a struggle for people? Absolutely. And I think a part of it could be social skill, kind of like uh, uh, kind of like challenges. We don't know how to seduce someone because great sex come with seduction. So and again, maybe you, no one taught you that there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, then you you settle for something that's not as uh, as exciting. Right. So uh, it's that could be part of it. Part of it could be like we might feel so much shame and negativity around the kind of sexual experiences that we're having. Maybe we, we love hookup sex, but there's a part of us that says that that's not okay. Maybe we are, I have clients that are interested in different genders and they use the alcohol to quiet that uh, self-critical voice. Uh, so that that gets in the way of you initiating. And sometimes, you know, if, if you kind of like cultivate that skill, that can make sex so much more bitter and you will be able to find a partner that might be, if you're not in a long-term relationship, that might be a better fit for what you need. How can we learn to start initiating? Like what if you're, I'm picturing people who are maybe married for a very long time and they have this like drunk sex routine where they drink and then they do the usual or someone who's trying to date with like 
a complete stranger that they're getting to know? Like, how can we learn to initiate and like feel confident in that? Well, I'll start with the kind of long-term couples because it's easy. And I talk about the kind of like maybe kind of hooking up or kind of like dating scene. Well, I think for both people, it's it's important to know that sometimes the partner might desire you. They, they like you, but their body is not ready to have sex because in order for us to be able to uh, experience pleasure, we need to have psychological arousal and physiological arousal. And if you are, you had a horrible day at work or maybe you're exhausted or you're like you had kids all day with you, maybe it's hard for your body to get the physiological arousal. So sometimes it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the, where the partner is kind of like with their body. So for long-term couples, I tell them that it's really important to create a kind of window of time for, for kind of being intimate. I know some people have this reaction to schedule sex. I'm not saying that kind of like you have to schedule it like in a way that putting in a calendar, we're going to have intercourse. But if you don't have space in your calendar for you connection with you and your partner, uh, it's going to be very hard to have spontaneous experiences. And it's hard to get your mind and body ready to be able to at the kind of place that you would want to have sex. So I tell people like thinking about, okay, once a week, once every other week, whatever frequency you want, have this on your schedule, the time that you can do something intimate together. And intimate could be even maybe like talking about your sexual fantasies, or it could be talking about kind of watching something together that's steamy or reading things. So it's, uh, it's a matter of kind of like creating that sacred space for you and your partner and see what's going to happen. Like we're showing up with the kind of like uh, good place in our mental space, good place with our kind of like physiological space and be curious on what happens. If, if you want to kind of have sex, you can have intercourse. If not, you can do all sorts of different things. So that's part of it. Um, I have clients that they, they have this kind of like uh, routine of uh, kind of like have this code word that like they're like texting things to each other. So like it's saying that like, when, like I, one of my clients that I work with, they, their code word is like they're sending a question mark. And the, when the question mark, like the, the texting, the question mark, the partner knows that the question mark is about, do you want to have sex? And what we want to do is like, you still can say no, but my invitation for you is then follow up with a yes. Like, okay, honey, maybe I, I'm not ready tonight, but knowing your schedule, knowing the barriers, kind of thinking about when would be the good time. Like, well, let's, let's re kind of like, let's, let's kind of reconvene this conversation tomorrow night or tomorrow night. I'm, I'm going to, we're going to have a great time. So still again, it's not ideal, but at least you're not completely closing the door on the partner. And the other thing is sometimes, uh, kind of like couples feel that the desire needs to be spontaneous. It's like a uh, switch that it's, it's either there or not. But there's a, there's a kind of huge number of people, what they experience is called responsive desire. Uh, you're, you're not first experiencing desire and then arousal. For you, arousal comes and then desire comes next. Uh, what's helpful for you to know that then if that is where you are, you can start with kind of like uh, when your partner initiates, then you can kind of explore with kind of like kissing or kind of exploring. And if the desire doesn't come, then you can kind of like say that, honey, like let's do it later or having some ritual there. So kind of like you're not always closing the door on kind of intimacy. 
The other uh, way is that like I, at times I tell my clients to do, I have this menu of the options of the kind of sexual experiences that you guys can do together. Sometimes maybe your body is not ready for intercourse, but if you have a menu of options of other fun, exciting things that you can do, uh, that can help you when, when your partner is initiating or you're initiating to, uh, to have some connection with your partner. And lastly is like if your partner is tired, maybe you want to support them with that. Like maybe they're exhausted. Maybe like you can help them with kind of like uh, reducing the, their chore around the house that day. Or you can help them with kind of doing the bills, whatever it is. So, so you, you can help your partner to feel more relaxed. So there, there will be more opportunities to say yes. So that would be for the couples. For the singles, I think it's really important to work on your confidence and skills. Uh, what happens is like, we, like there's no one that always gets yes. Like no matter how good looking you are, what kind of body you are, you will receive a no at times. But if you have worked on your self uh, like self-worth and self-confidence, you'll be more comfortable with that. So I think it's important kind of to know that uh, if you receive a no, it's not about you. It's more about kind of like the, the match, perhaps. Uh, the other piece that's important to kind of like keep in mind is for heterosexual couples, especially I know for women, if a man want to uh, initiate, sometimes people tend to come off a little bit aggressive. So it's really important to kind of like help your partner to relax and kind of create a comfortable environment for them. If you want to kind of like initiate sex at, at a bar or some kind of public place with someone that you don't know. Uh, but it's like a skill, like any other skill, it's something you can practice and see what fits your, uh, fits your style. I, I have this strong reaction when their pickup artists say like, these are the three lines that you have to say and kind of start with it. And it, it comes off so uh, artificial and also uh, it can it can kind of like reduce your confidence because now you feel like you have to follow from a script amazing I have so much to say about all of that but the first thing that I was thinking is does alcohol allow us to have that like spontaneous desire that we think we're supposed to have no, what it does is that if your mo uh, model of desire is responsive, what it does is it helps you to numb down, numb out. So you you are moving to the kind of like place of kind of arousal, kind of like having kind of like, okay, let's move without kind of foreplay, without kind of any seduction to having intercourse. And sometimes that's also very uncomfortable. So we're like overriding our internal cues because our desire is is kind of data for us, right? That if you are making out with a partner after 10 minutes, you're still not in the mood, then uh, it's you're, you don't want to kind of say yes if that's the kind of recurring experience you have because your body is not ready. You will have challenges with experiencing orgasm. You have challenges with uh, kind of like being uncomfortable in your body because when you are drunk, the kind of like a vaginal uh, kind of wall become more dry. The lubrication, the lubrication is less. So it's more uh, uncomfortable. But because you are kind of numbing yourself out, you're overriding those cues. So um, it's not changing your model of des uh, desire. It's more of kind of like numbing out the kind of experience you're having. That makes a lot of sense that we're not we're not having a different experience. We're just not able to pick up on the cues that we would be having normally. And when you did say scheduled sex doesn't have to be intercourse I always thought that it was like we're gonna have sex like let's go we're scheduling it so I think that takes a lot of pressure off to know that you can schedule intimacy and you don't have to schedule 
sex. Because if you're, you know, the more time that goes on throughout the day, sometimes the less and less you want to do it. And then you're like, oh, we scheduled sex. Like, how do I get out of this tonight? But if you know it's, you can just have intimacy without having the pressure of needing to have intercourse every time. I think that can be really helpful. I agree with you. And it could be like even erotic massage, right? You have a tough day, then you're kind of like doing erotic massage and that can can be feeling like sexy and relaxing. It doesn't need to every time come with the uh, intensity. So about these cues that we are overriding with alcohol, that can feel scary when someone like first starts experiencing sober sex. And they might think like it's it's their fault or there's something wrong with them. Like how can we start the conversation with our partner to let them know like what we what we like and what we don't like and maybe if we need more foreplay or we want more of something and less of something else. Well, you're right that like when you want to have sober sex, that can feel scary and it can feel unfamiliar. Like it's almost at times feels like you're having sex for the first time. Uh, So what you want to do is like getting to know yourself first. I think self-discovery is the most important part of uh, kind of like this this journey. Uh, So what you want to do is to think about the hottest sexual experiences you had, like the best sexual experiences you had. Maybe you were drunk, maybe you were not. But what we're thinking about is what I was feeling in that moment, like right before having sex and during sex. Was it excitement? What is, was it novelty? Was it shame? Whatever it was, like you want to kind of like uh, extract that. I'm kind of like think about, okay, that's something that's exciting for me. What can I do to cultivate that? So, and start communicating that with your partner. I think it starts with communication. I think that's one of the benefit of uh, having a long-term partner is someone that you can have recurrent conversation with i tell my clients at time let's even talk about fantasies kind of scheduling time once a month let's talk about fantasies it doesn't need for you like we don't we don't do it because we want our partner to do it right it's not a way of pressuring our partner to do things is just getting curious about your partner's sexual kind of identity. So, and if you struggle with kind of identifying that, you can read the kind of like erotica, you can uh, think about some of the steamy movies that you watch, some of the kind of, if you watch porn, some of the scenes that's very exciting, and talk about that with your partner and kind of get curious about that to see what is it that you kind of like psychologically about that dynamic that's exciting for you. That is part of that. I think the other part is kind of like that there are so many lists of yes no maybe of the things that you can do and you can kind of like choose things that feel safer to kind of like explore things with your partner I think the other thing that's really really important is to have a practice of mindfulness uh, there are there was this very interesting study on women with low desire in Canada and what they found that even with only few weeks of practicing eating raisins mindfully their desire increase, right? You don't need to do necessarily do sexy things. You just need to train your mind to be present during sex because sex is a kind of arousal is a natural function of the body. What gets in the way is all of these stories that we're telling yourself. So practicing mindfulness alone on your own, like maybe starting with five minutes and the research, that research study showed that 20 minutes was the optimal kind of like the window for, for those participants. 
And you can even do it with your partner. That's why I think tantric sex can be really exciting. You can schedule time that you and your partner are kind of like uh, exploring the part, different parts of each other's body. When you're starting this, so we're not touching breast or genital. We're just kind of like doing mindful touching and training our mind to kind of think what shows up for us. Because when we don't know what we like, it's because we haven't noticed what's arousing to us. Yeah, I think a lot of people just, we don't know what we like. And we're so used to robotic, habitual sex where we just kind of get right into it, have some alcohol so that we feel more confident. And then you get sober and you try to have like kind of the same sex and maybe that's not the sex you want. I'm gonna practice that too, actually. I'm gonna tell my husband. <laughs> we need to be mindful because I've never tried that. And I'm thinking like, yeah, we just get this, you know, routine and you do the same thing all the time and then you try to remove the alcohol and keep the sex exactly the same. Absolutely, and it's definitely a practice. Like even when you practice it a lot, your mind gets distracted. And some of the challenges, even when people are not able to experience orgasm, it's because our mind is distracted. We're not, our partner can do something fantastic with a kind of like a building arousal, but because we're thinking about our laundry list of kind of grocery shopping and all of that, we're missing on kind of like paying attention to those sensations. For people who don't have partner, they can explore that themselves, kind of like doing the kind of self-stimulation, exploring different touches and see how does it feel. Again, it doesn't need to build to arousal. We're just like training our mind to paying attention to temperature, uh, pressure and uh, texture. Yeah, I think that that is amazing. For people that are drinking, I want to bring up something that probably a lot of people struggle with is body image with sex. Like when you have really bad body image alcohol can you know make you forget at least part of your body image if that is a barrier to sober sex like feeling like they like their body or feeling that they're desirable what can people do to to work through that or confidence you were mentioning confidence earlier too with your skills Absolutely. Unfortunately, like challenges with self-confidence and with body image and self-image is so common because we were taught how what sexy look like. Like we don't never told us like how it's supposed to feels like. So like when we're thinking I don't look like that, therefore I, I'm not going to have great sex. So that's what alcohol does with kind of like quieting down that, uh, that voice. Number of different things that's important to, to do is, first of all, kind of identifying what are some of the stories that you're telling yourself about uh, the kind of body that you need to have in order to have sex and kind of like challenging it. Kind of, do you know people that are sexy and they're in a larger body? How does having certain kind of body, it's, it's, it's correlated for you to having great sex. And I think the other thing is like being mindful of your visual diet. So as you're kind of like looking at Instagram accounts, Facebook, unfollow mute uh, accounts that doesn't make you feel good about yourself. Because if you're kind of constantly thinking about like looking at pictures saying, I'm not, I don't look like this. Uh, I don't deserve this. So it's just throughout the day, you are feeding that kind of like uh, disordered eating unhealthy part of you. So what we want to do is to follow people that they have the brand, the brand of sexiness that you like. They look like you and you like their confidence. Like, okay, well that's, I can be that. And that can be very, 
very encouraging for you to have these role models of men, women, and people of all gender who are kind of comfortable in their scale, skin. So that's that's part of it. One other thing that I tell people is kind of like maybe before doing sex, do something that you feel good about it. If like boxing is something that you like, if you're crafting, it's kind of like arts and craft is your thing, do something right before to kind of build your confidence. That is also important. And I think more importantly, again, going back to practice of mindfulness, train yourself to notice that, like, what am I telling myself? And kind of like train yourself to shift your attention to the moment. It's definitely not a one-time kind of a practice. It's something that you like muscle that you're practicing, but long-term that can lead to change. And if you have a unresolved eating disorders, like it, please get support because sometimes people struggle with these kind of like acute challenges for years and years, and they don't know that recovery is possible. So I think that's also something to important to keep in mind. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up who you follow and who you look at and to try to find people that have the brand of sexiness that you like. I love that. I, at the height of my bad body image, right before I stopped drinking, I was following like all the popular fitness accounts and comparing the way that they looked. And, and like, I would try to do, you know, the same workouts to try to get the same body and it doesn't work that way. And so I think being mindful of like what you're actually looking at and realizing that that has a huge impact on how you feel about yourself. Absolutely. And I had the same struggle. So I'm a Middle Eastern woman with coming with different genes. And I was following this like very thin European models. And maybe like their their body kind of metabolism was different. Their body type was different. And for me, in order to look like that uh, was like the only way I would say like was it kind of having an eating disorder. So I think it's important to be honest with yourself. And what kind of value you have and what kind of life you want to live. So I, I, I like that that's something that also you've noticed. Yeah, and doing things that make you feel confident. It doesn't have to be body image or, or like sex-wise. Like it doesn't have to be a fitness thing, but it could be anything that just makes you feel positive about yourself. And then you bring that into the rest of your life. Like that's what I found with sobriety too, is it makes me feel better about myself. And then that invades every area of my life. So it doesn't have to be like you go to the gym and you're feeling like super skinny, you know, and then so therefore you feel more confident when you're trying to connect with your partner. It could be any, you could go boxing and just feel really powerful and that helps you feel more confident. I think that's that's a great tip. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you you find it useful. And again, it's it sometimes it takes a while for people to kind of expo- experiment. What do I like and what does make me feel good? And I tell people, we're kind of going back to the exercise. Like some people say, I hate exercise, but I'm doing it because I need to do to do it to lose weight. I tell people, like if that's how you feel, then that's not sustainable. So if if what what kind of exercises you liked as a kid? What kind of things that you like to do? Was it dancing? Was it biking? Maybe you can look into those kind of movements to kind of like, as you said, helping with building the confidence and body positivity. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be going on the Stairmaster for an hour and hating your life. Exactly. If someone is listening to this and they have been avoiding sober sex at all costs because they're terrified, what can they do to just kind of make it a little bit easier and make a tiny bit of progress towards feeling more comfortable. I guess if if you are kind of single, like go on this journey of kind of exploration of 
what kind of a kind of like psychological uh, arousal kind of material excites you. What we want to do is like to build kind of like uh, in, uh, deposit money in our erotic bank. So kind of like think about it. It doesn't need that like you have to have kind of like this sexual energy and want to have sex. So we're just kind of investing on ourselves and getting to know ourselves. If you're comfortable with kind of like uh, exploring your body, that could be an option as well. So I think it's important to get comfortable in your body. Many of my clients that are survivors, even kind of like any kind of touch in their body is really painful and maybe like you can kind of like do the self-soothing, exploring your body and see what's going to happen next. As I said, like sexual function and arousal is a kind of normal part of being human. So when you are kind of getting comfortable in your body, that's what can follow. I think if you have a partner, kind of like having this honest conversation about what are some of the things that you like and what are some of the things that in the past didn't work for you guys as a couple during sex and start talking about it. I tell people like I, all of my clients to have sexy happy hour once a month, once kind of every other week, we're doing sexy happy hour. We're wearing something that's fun and we're doing mocktails and kind of like doing things that kind of like makes us like setting the environment that's sexy. And we're talking about what is working for us and what do we want to explore as couples? Because uh, kind of boredom is one of the main challenges that I see in many couples. And as you said, like maybe you have the same routine years and years and it was working like 20 years ago or 10 years ago. But you both are curious on what can we do to spice things up a little bit. So during that uh, kind of like sexy happy hour, that can be the time that you can do kind of explore that with your partner. I love sexy happy hour. What a good idea. And everything that you're suggesting that we do isn't like schedule sex, have the sex, and eventually you're going to be comfortable with it. It's not about that at all. It's more about learning about yourself. Like, what do you actually like? What is your partner actually like? What are your shared interests? How do you feel comfortable? That kind of thing. So I think changing the narrative that we tell ourselves that it's not do it and then eventually it gets better. It's it's learn about yourself. Just start there. Just learn about yourself. Absolutely. And kind of thinking about with your partner, if you're with a partner, you're co-creating this exciting scripts and the scripts will evolve and change and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's completely normal for couples to like different things. So it's just a matter of negotiating things and or finding something that's exciting. I think sometimes people are scared of the differences and as long as you work on like having strong communication skills, there's nothing that you cannot tackle with your partner. Thank you so much for this. This was amazing. I'm so glad that we finally did this. So what what is next for you? What are you up to right now? Any projects that you're working on or exciting things? Sure. So I'm working on doing more of courses and workshops. What I found that not everyone is comfortable coming to therapy, especially sex therapy. <laughs> So they, they are no way. <laughs> they are more comfortable to do kind of exercises, work on the challenges if it's a course that they uh, they can do at home. So I did one for couples with uh, kind of desire discrepancy, couples that they want to kind of spice up their relationship. And I have a workshop that I open and close for uh, penis owners that are struggling with uh, rectal functioning and kind of talking about how can you tackle this. So that's what I'm focusing on, kind of like creating programs that people can take in the comfort of their home. I like that idea because there is a big barrier to getting comfortable with therapy, especially when it's such a vulnerable topic. So I'll link your courses in the show notes. I think that's so cool. Besides listening to the sexology podcast, 
where can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Well, thank you so much for the shout out and thank you for the invitation. Um, I have an Instagram account called at sexology that I, uh, sexology podcast that I post kind of relevant information on sexual health, trending topics. So that's also another place that can people find me. Amazing. So I'll link all of that in the show notes. And again, just thank you so much for coming here and, and sharing all of this. I think this was a huge help for me and I know that it has helped a lot of other people. Well, thank you so much, Jill, for inviting me. And thank you for the work that you're doing because it feels like people uh, need uh, tools and resources and kind of like shared stories and experience of other people when it comes to kind of starting this new chapter of their life. You don't need to, I'm, I'm preaching to choir. <laughs> But I think it's wonderful <laughs> that uh, that you you created this wonderful resource for everyone. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. From ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope, listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there.